John chapter 8, 46 through to 59. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, Jesus said, but I honour my father and you dishonour me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. At this the Jews exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets. And yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not... I would be a liar, just like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him. Have you seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. Lovely to be here, lovely to be in Perth. And uh, I've, as I've shared, uh, I arrived last Saturday, so I've been here, what, seven days, and uh, enjoyed your city thoroughly and found myself up at Two Rocks on Friday, went for a bit of a drive, thought I'd spend some time with God and... Ended up way up there. It was great. <laughs> Recommend spending time with God. It was good. Um, my first time to Perth was in 1996. I think it was the 21st of January. It's a lovely summer's day. I was here because my girlfriend at the time had a brother who fell in love with a Perth girl. So we had to head over here from Melbourne for the wedding and had a lovely time being introduced to Perth. And I thought, wow, what a fantastic city uh, Perth is. Um, I met Cathy at university through the CU. There you go. CU is good for a lot of things, getting to know God and getting to know one girl in particular. <laughs> Sadly, Kathy's uh, not able to be with us tonight. She's back at home with the kids. And I know, and I know what I'll be doing in this week coming up. It'll be my turn to look after the kids this week coming. Give her a break. Uh, our family loves uh, the Olympics. I don't know if you love the Olympics, love the swimming, the athletics, and uh, each time the Olympics comes around, we, you know, work out our week so that we can watch as much as possible, depending on what time zone you're in and so forth. It's not always easy, but uh, this last Olympics was the Rio, wasn't it? Rio Brazil, 2016. And uh, we had the, the women's marathon, and not long into the race, there was this woman running uh, from Kenya. And uh, she went on and won a gold medal for Kenya. A little later in the program, of course, there's a men's marathon. And, well, have a guess who was out in front. Another Kenyan doing the thing that Kenyans do so well, and that's run fast for a long time. And so 
A Kenyan wins another gold medal for Kenya. The double. I haven't had a chance to research it. Maybe we've got some guys here that love Olympic history. Has any nation won the double men and women's marathon before, other than Kenya? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe Ethiopia. I don't know. But there you go. Kenya's done it. The double. Um, but I found myself cheering along because uh, I love Kenya. I love Kenyans. I grew up there as a missionary kid. And uh, my parents were Michos at Kajabi. And so Kenya's a part of my DNA. It's sort of who I am. So even 25, 30 years later, when I see a Kenyan running, I just can't help but cheer them on. Uh, coming back from Kenya, went through the transitions of changing cultures, moving back into Aussie culture back in Melbourne, and it was pretty tough. Went through a pretty tough time. And with Cathy, who was also uh, an MK, uh, we shared that journey together a bit. And I used to call those seasons identity crises, crises, whatever the right grammar is for that. Um, yeah, but God was in all of that. And, uh, and, uh, but identity. So if we can go to the next slide. We have some flags, the Kenyan flag, the Aussie flag, and the Mauritian flag. So uh, my wife and I have been in Mauritius for 10 years, serving with pioneers. And I asked myself, well, am I a Mauritian now? If I've been there for 10 years, what makes one a Mauritian? So I've got to add that into my mix. So I just settle on, well, I guess I'm just a global nomad and looking forward to our eternal home. But along the way, enjoying visiting a lot of countries and getting to know a lot of people. Some of you that have moved countries, maybe overseas students, will identify a bit with this whole thing of moving countries and cultures and so forth. Uh, part of our work in Mauritius was sharing the gospel with Muslims. That was part of why we went and still is uh, a part of what we're doing there. And one thing I was confronted with very early on was the Islamic view of Jesus. So is, as Islam moves around the world, it's not only promoting Muhammad, but it's also promoting Jesus, one of their prophets. They have an Islamic view of Jesus. They have a Christology, if you like, that's being promoted along with their promotion of Muhammad. And so the question there is, well, how do we understand who Jesus is? Who is Jesus? Islamic view, Christian view, different views about Jesus. Uh, of course, there's a lot of Hindus in uh, Mauritius as well. And the Hindus have a certain view of Jesus Christ as well. So tonight we're looking at uh, who am I, who are you, and who is Jesus Christ, as we look at this passage in John. Uh, there is another slide that's got two little pictures tonight in this lecture. Well, this is probably what you do during lectures during the week. You draw pictures, right? Yeah. Um, tonight you have permission to draw pictures, so I hope you brought your texters along. And you can draw Jesus as the way of taking notes, okay, from this passage. And that me's not me. Don't draw pictures of me, please. That me is you, okay? Put yourself there, and as we go through this passage, take notes as you like uh, as we look at this um, from John. So some of you will have read John, and you know that at the end of his gospel, he tells us the reason for writing his gospel. John 20, 31, he says, I've written these things so that you may know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that you will believe in him, and by believing in him, you will have eternal life. And of course, for John, eternal life is using the salvation language. He's saying, 
you need to believe in trusting the identity of Jesus, who Jesus is. It's foundational for, central to salvation, to eternal life. Uh, He gets to that conclusion through things like what we're going to look at here in John chapter 8. So let's jump into the chapter because it's a pretty heavy chapter. There's a lot going on. In fact, the Jews uh, already by this time wanted to kill Jesus. Uh, And so Jesus tells them that their father must not be Abraham because Abraham wouldn't do such things back in verse 40. Understanding who our father is is critical in understanding our identities and who we are. Jesus says, therefore, in verse 44, you belong to your father, the devil, and want to carry out your father's desires. Now, the Jews thought this was ridiculous. A Jew saying that their father's not Abraham is crazy. And more crazy, of course, is to accuse these Jewish leaders of, of uh, following the devil and not Abraham and the prophets and the scriptures. Crazy stuff. Jesus is exposing their true identity, exposing their theology, and it's failure to answer his claims about who uh, he is. And so, not surprisingly, uh, they're not happy and they resort to personal uh, attacks. It's what happens, isn't it? You start in a, a debate in the realms of ideas, but it's not very long before you start attacking personally the person that you might be debating an issue with and that's what's happening here the tension rises a level as we get to verse 48 aren't we right in saying that you are a samaritan and demon possessed now some of you that have studied first century relationships will know that the samaritans and the jews haven't got along for centuries Uh, they weren't that friendly with one another in fact so To call Jesus a Samaritan was a very derogatory term. It was an insult. Uh, It was even racist uh, to call Jesus a Samaritan. Perhaps news had travelled up to these uh, leaders in Jerusalem about Jesus' visit to uh, the Samaritan village and around that well back in John chapter 4. If you've read John chapter 4, you remember Jesus' interaction uh, with the woman at the well where he goes to her as a Jewish rabbi. Now, rabbis don't talk to women in that culture and they certainly didn't do it alone around a well Um, and then they certainly, Jewish leaders certainly would not go into a Samaritan village and share uh, with them. So these Jewish leaders, leaders, I'm suggesting, perhaps heard about what happened in John chapter 4 and they could not comprehend that Jesus was able to bring the Samaritans to Judaism so surely Jesus must have compromised his situation, muddied himself in Samaritanism and therefore is um, up for accusation, you Samaritan, they accuse him of being. So the Jews are abusive in their name calling. And of course, Jesus recognises this for what it is. Um, And in verse 49, he says, well, you are dishonouring me. He's feeling it. He, he knows what they're saying. Uh, it's a Greek word. If you go to the next slide, it's atamizo, uh, which only occurs seven times in the New Testament. Uh, it means to, um, as it says there on the screen, it means to dishonor, to treat shamefully, and to insult. 
So Jesus is very upfront about what they're saying here. Now, in first century culture, it's a bit more of an honour-shame culture, and that's what they're doing. They're shaming Jesus publicly. They're dishonouring him publicly uh, to put him down, to put him out by calling him a Samaritan and demon-possessed. Now, I don't know if when you were in primary school, but some years ago when I was in primary school, I uh, was taught this song, uh, Sticks and Stones Will Break My Bones, But Words Will Never Hurt Me. Do they still sing that in primary school? Maybe at university too? Um, I was in a meeting uh, with some of my good brothers and sisters in Christ from a Muslim background, just four or five of us, uh, in a home, a Christian home, and we were talking about our, our ministry of reaching Muslims. Um, reflecting on how hard it is and what things we can try do differently, what relationships we were different people were sharing with and praying together. And there was one Muslim, well, a Christian guy, but from a Muslim background uh, there, and we're reflecting on him and his family, and, and I said a few things about that publicly uh, in that little home uh, meeting. The next morning when I woke up, I looked at my phone and there was a message that had been sent uh, a little bit earlier that morning that said, that's it, I don't want to do ministry with you anymore, um, I need a break. Now, I didn't know where this came from, complete shock. So I was quick that day, later that day, I uh, tried to contact this fellow and to talk about well, what happened. Now, thankfully, we're doing ministry again together, uh, he's a, a really dear brother, uh, we've resolved it in one sense, but actually we still haven't talked about what happened that night. We've talked around it a bit. Um, He's not willing to talk about it. Now, I suspect um, that I said things that night uh, that shamed him publicly. I think I made a big mistake the way I talked about some things a little bit, uh, certainly not a little bit, but certainly unaware of how he felt. He felt shame in some of the things I said. Made a big mistake. And of course, in our egalitarian kind of Aussie culture, uh, we don't always understand the intricacies of uh, honour-shame relationships that are more prominent in other cultures. Uh, If you're from an Asian culture here, um, you'll appreciate uh, these things a lot more. But whatever culture uh, we're in, uh, things that people say about us can uh, hurt deeply, They can trouble us, uh, especially when it relates to our identity. And that's what the devil's on about. This is what the devil's doing here. The devil's trying to unpack Jesus' true identity. And the devil will use lies from all sorts of places. He will use any place uh, to speak lies into our lives. He will use our spouse, husband, our wife, a colleague, a student, whoever, whatever way. Uh, to communicate lies to us. So for uh, those that have decided to follow Jesus, their family will say to them, and the devil will help in this by saying, shame on you, shame on you for following Jesus so seriously. Or some of our great marketing graduates will convince us through their very clever marketing campaigns that if you use a particular shampoo, you're a special person. Uh, Or... As some of you have probably been told, you know, how can you follow, you know, you're, you're a bit crazy, a bit of an idiot to, to follow an old-time religion like Christianity. You know, it's time to grow up. 
kind of thing. Or maybe we've got some particular views from the Bible and you get told you're a bigot. Different things come to us in different ways and we need to discern voices that we're hearing through the Bible to discern whether they're true or whether they are in fact lies from the devil. So Lord, give us biblical discernment. So how does Jesus respond? What's his approach in discerning what he's hearing from these religious leaders? These lies that are coming to him. Now, again, remember Jesus is only about 30 years old. These guys are probably a little older, a bit wiser in the walk of Judaism. Um, And culturally, there would have been a very big expectation for him to honour these fellows. Um, to, to agree with them and to follow uh, their teaching and their guidance. So he was under the pump, so to speak, but he responds directly, without ambiguity, without doubt, he says, no, no, I'm not demon-possessed. Jesus doesn't crum under, crumble under the pressure. He resists the temptation to conform and please men, even these powerful political men. He doesn't allow them to manipulate his identity and claims about himself. And remember again, this is still under the threat of death. He's not discouraged by their name-calling tactics. Rather, he maintains his position. He maintains maintains, uh, the teaching because these honour his father. Jesus is telling the truth which he has heard from the father Jesus knows the Father and keeps his words. So clearly, Jesus' courage, his identity, his theology, all come through his relationship with his Father. In his ultimate desire to please and honour the Father, to love the Father, he simply is unable to agree with the Jewish leaders and knowingly lie about himself. Jesus' claims about himself, they don't come from arrogance. They don't come from some crazy idea that he's just made up. It doesn't come from the Samaritans. And it doesn't come from some devilish influence. It simply comes from his relationship with the Father who's revealed to him the word, the truth about who Jesus Christ is. What Jesus is exemplifying for us here in our own wrestle with our own identities, who, who am I, who are you, uh, who's Jesus, uh, <clears throat> is, that it, is that we, us, we're primarily, our identity is primarily rooted in our relationship with the Father through Jesus. Now, this becomes more apparent when we read later in the Gospel, especially in John 15, where Jesus talks about the vine. He uses the vine as a metaphor for the people of God. God the Father is the gardener, the loving gardener who cares for the vine. Christians are in the vine as a a branch of the vine of, of Jesus Christ. And our new identity is completely changed as we become a part of that vine. By faith, by obedience, we remain uh, in the vine. Our identity is 
changed. We have a new identity. To illustrate this, um, by example, I heard of uh, from this man who was in a meeting with the two uh, leaders of the major tribes in South Sudan, the Nua tribe and the Dinka tribe. Now, these tribes are, are largely, one's largely Presbyterian, the other's largely uh, Anglican. And this Christian guy was meeting with them, trying to work out, well, why are these tribes fighting? If they're Christians, surely there's a good basis for unity. But both of these leaders of these tribes says, well, yes, Jesus, Christianity is fine, but in this case, it comes second to our tribal identity. And so they couldn't even, as Christians, resolve it to keep them from fighting one another. Now, of course, there are Christians within those tribes who see things very differently because their identity has been changed and they're working very hard for peace between uh, these two tribes. But by way of example, when you are grafted into Christ, it changes your culture, it changes who you are and the, the way you relate uh, to others especially other brothers and sisters in Christ and therefore the world as well. Jesus takes uh, this debate to a higher level. As we look at verse 56, he says, uh, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus claims to be the fulfillment of Abraham's joys and hopes that through Abraham and his promised son Isaac, all nations of the earth would be blessed. Now the Jews respond in utter disbelief and astonishment, but you're not even 50 years old, how could you have seen Abraham? And as this debate unfolds, this question opens up an opportunity that Jesus seizes to make a statement that's going to shock the Jews. He begins this formula, or this final point, sorry, with a formula that's common if you've ever read the old King James Version. It's verily, verily. Um, I'm not sure, was it very truthfully or something in your version? It's a common little phrase that runs through the Gospel of John. It's there to say, I'm going to say something important now, so listen up. Before Abraham was, I am. Now those of you who have studied John will know what Jesus is saying here. It's a part of this I am thing that's right through this gospel. Uh, John uses it in three ways in John's gospel. He uses it with a predicate. So a number of places through uh, the gospel, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine, I am the resurrection and the life, and I am the way, the truth, and the life. Incredible claims right through this gospel. He also uses it in a second way, like, for example, when he's actually talking to the Samaritan woman by the well, and it's the first time in John's gospel he discloses something about himself that he hasn't even openly disclosed to the Jews yet. But he says to this Samaritan woman through the discussion, he says, I am he. Or I am the one. And then thirdly, in John's Gospel, only once, here in verse 58, he uses this I am in an absolute form. Uh, as some of you will know, he's referring to a very special moment in 
the Exodus story, Exodus chapter 3, where God discloses things about himself, about his name. It's also picked up in Isaiah in a few places. <clears throat> now, if Jesus was speaking Hebrew or Aramaic, which is very likely, then what Jesus has just said here, as he's uh, in dialogue with these Jews, he's just referred to himself as Yahweh. pronouncing the most sacred of divine expressions of God, which is never normally spoken out loud. And certainly, even more shockingly, was Jesus' claim to be more than the Messiah, but here claiming to be God, claiming to be a divine Messiah. So no, I'm not demon-possessed. No, I'm not promoting myself. I will tell you who my Father God thinks I am. I am Yahweh. The Jews are shocked. They're in an absolute frenzy now. The emotions are running very high because they know, they've just heard what Jesus has said. Their father, the devil, the one of lies, interprets this claim as a lie and thus blasphemy. And so in their outrage... They begin to pick up stones to stone him. Now, stoning was allowed as a means of capital punishment. It's there in the Old Testament laws, but only after a civil court hearing. But what we have here is devilish mob violence. And John tells us that, remarkably, Jesus escapes. Uh, doesn't tell us the details, but it must have been a miracle of some sort to get out of that sticky situation. We know again from John's Gospel that uh, in other places it talks about, well, Jesus' time had not yet come. And as you know the story, it does come not, in not, much, too, in not, not much longer <clears throat> in the Gospel story. As Jesus flees the stones of these holy temple grounds... Woe to those hearts who have been hardened and reject this Jesus who has come to them in love and grace. And so we might pray for ourselves tonight and pray for the world. Have mercy on us, Lord God, that we would have softened hearts to hear you, to receive this Jesus that God you have sent into our midst, that by faith we would receive this Jesus, this Yahweh incarnate, in grace and truth. If we go to uh, the next slide, we'll just go back to our little pictures. I don't know how you've been going in pictorially drawing our little passage tonight. But let me conclude just a few things. Firstly, to honour God, we must accept what God the Father says about the identity of his Son, Jesus, as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as the divine I am. To reject Jesus is to dishonour God, it's to shame God. Secondly, Jesus is not just a yes man. As you can see here and in other places, there are times when Jesus says no, especially when truth is at stake. His close walk relationship with God gave him the strength and the courage to stand up against uh, these lies. 
even when it means public shame and humiliation. And as we know, as the story goes on, Jesus is willing to stick to this right to his death on a cruel Roman cross in a very, uh, um, through a process of a great humiliation and shame to Jesus. Now today the persecuted church around the world is suffering, men and women and children are suffering because they're saying yes to Jesus and no to these world religions and views around them. These religions and world views will say shame on you for following Jesus and in, you know, that, that, can, that does cut deep and hurts and of course there's other physical ways and violent ways too that people uh, are responding to our brothers and sisters in Christ because they're saying yes to Jesus and no to these other world views. Some of my uh, Mauritian and your Mauritian brothers and sisters in Christ have experienced this. This is their testimony as they decide to follow Jesus. They experience shame and trouble from those around them. And even I'm sure there are some of you here tonight that can identify with this. Jesus said to his disciples, if they do this to me, reject and hate me, they will certainly do it to you. So in order to remain strong in discerning what is truth and what is lies, we must remain very close to Jesus. We must remain in this true vine and allow the Father, the loving Father, God, to guide us, inform us, to prune us as we remain close to him. Thirdly, we must not compromise our mission for which we have been called and sent. In this pluralistic world, and I'm sure you experience this on the university campus, um, we must relate, yes, relate peacefully to other religions, in love, in grace, um, but we don't compromise on the truth of Jesus let me encourage you to preach the three U's of Jesus. Jesus is unique. Most people will say, yeah, there's something quite unique about Jesus, but it's a bit more than that, isn't it? And the second U is universal. Um, when Jesus, after sharing with the woman, they went down into the village and some of the Samaritan uh, villagers said, yep, we want to follow you, Jesus. What they were doing was turning their backs on Samaritanism. There was a whole religion behind that. They turned their backs on that to follow Jesus. Jesus was their new Messiah, the new one to follow. And at the end there, you can read in chapter 4, these villagers make this very wonderful statement. They say, he's Jesus, the saviour of the world. Jesus is universal in that sense. He's universally needed for people, for all nations, for salvation. The third you is ultimate. That is, he is supreme. He's above all gods. He's above all ideologies or worldviews or falsehoods that the devil might concoct or make up in some magic spell or whatever the devil might do. Jesus will and is ultimate, almighty. He is Yahweh. There's nothing that's going to overcome him or come before him or put him aside. Jesus is Ultimate, at the end, Jesus will reign. So Jesus is unique, he is uh, universal, and he is ultimate. So with this message, like Jesus, we must be willing to go 
and associate with those who reject this message. Uh, go in grace and go in truth. And I encourage you tonight, uh, in your mission, in whatever ways God's uh, called you, to be prepared at times to associate with people you wouldn't normally associate with so that the gospel can go out, crossing cultural barriers, whatever barriers, these need to be crossed so that the gospel can go out. This is what Jesus did, as I said earlier. Uh, He took shame upon himself culturally. It was very shameful to take the message, his message himself, to the Samaritans. So this incarnate, I am, sent as a Jewish man, willing to identify and associate with all humanity. So yes, we can say incarnational ministry. We can say yes, contextual ministry. But syncretism, that is the blending of world religions and views, we say no. Uh, As a uni church... In your mission, let me encourage you to go in love, go in grace, and go in truth as you you share this wonderful gospel. As you go, I've got three books to recommend to you. I think one of them's on down the front. We'll just go to the next slide and they'll jump up on the screen. The first one uh, is by Nabil Qureshi. Um, Some of you perhaps, I hope many of you actually, have read some of his work. He writes some very good books about Islam and Christianity. And this one in particular, Answering Jihad, he answers the question that's very important uh, for us and many nations. And the question is, is Islam a religion of peace? Now, Nabil Qureshi uh, is a Pakistani guy, but he grew up in America, where American Muslims teach that Islam is a religion of peace. And he goes through... Uh, wrestling through this question in a very, very good way. And uh, let me say, Joan read it during the week and she highly recommends it. Uh, So on her recommendation as well, thank you, Joan, uh, I recommend it as good reading. Um, There's other books Nabil's read as well which are very good. I recommend him as an author. If honour and shame is something or, or they're peoples that you're interested in or you're sharing the gospel with, then I encourage this book. It's hot off the press. Uh, You can get it in the Kindle version, but the paper copy is still being shipped uh, to Australia. It's a very new book. I haven't read it yet myself. I'm looking forward to it. I've read some other work by this author, The 3D Gospel. But uh, if on a shame something, then I highly uh, recommend this book too. If if you've got missionaries and missionary kids on your heart, then I recommend this third book, Third Culture Kids. Or if you're just someone that's transitioned through cultures, um, uh, just the journey that you've been on then I encourage this book it's about 30 years old um, but it's very good in the way it kind of unpacks the whole identity thing sorry my voice is starting to go because it's been a long day I was at the 8am service this morning so. <laughs> <coughs> I'll get there um, yeah I highly recommend this book uh, as we unpack uh, things that missionaries and MKs and children of diplomats and all sorts of kids that move around this global world that we live in. There's some very good insights. So let me encourage you as Uni Church, as St. Matt's, uh, as uh, you're in the mission of Jesus to persevere. Um, someone was praying this morning and even as, uh, not Ben, 
Brendan. Brendan, is that right? Yeah, as Brendan was praying earlier, you know, naming all these people. Praise God, hey, for the, the people that you're connected with that are out there serving God. Let's continue uh, in our work for Jesus in encouraging uh, work around the world and, of course, work right here on campus in Perth, WA. Um, persevere in taking this Jesus uh, to people. But let me encourage you as well just to seek God in in whatever journey, whatever place you're in too, is God's asking you to a new thing uh, from whatever has been shared last Sunday and through the week and tonight. If God's prompting you into something, let me encourage you to take steps of faith, of obedience in those directions, whatever God might be laying on your heart, to in fact even now start preparing to go overseas, to pack up your bags and jump on a plane and take the gospel to people's that are yet to hear or to go to countries that have churches but they just need a helping hand to strengthen, to encourage and to build up God's work in those places. Going, praying, encouraging, giving, whatever it might be, let me encourage you tonight as a follower of Jesus to be involved in real ways in what God is doing. It's on God's heart, the Father's heart, to have people from all nations come to him. Be a part of that, I encourage you. Persevere. I know many of you are already involved. Let me encourage you to persevere in that and or to pick up new things in this journey of loving and serving our Lord Jesus. You know, we live in this age Abraham was looking forward to, the Messianic age. He was glad when he was looking at it from a distance. We're living in it. Uh, what does that entail? Well, it entails people coming to faith, families coming to faith in homes, villages, in cities around the world, people gathering together like this in universities and people being transformed, changed as the truth of the gospel makes its impact in people's lives, as identities are changed, as we're grafted into this great global church, the vine, and under the care of of God the Father. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Let us praise God that we are privileged to not only see it but to live it, to experience what for Abraham was something that he could just see from a distance. Amen. Thank you. Praise God for his word. And may he richly bless it to you tonight and into this week.